Hi, good morning, and good to be with you. If, uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you're here. Um, if, uh, especially if you're, if you're like new to faith or new to exploring who Jesus is, if that's you, you picked a really great week to, to visit because we're in this series in Exodus. And Exodus is, uh, just as a church, what we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we preach right through it. We want to read everything that God's Word has to say for us. We don't want to uh, kind of skip around and, and then maybe miss things. And so we preach through books of the Bible. Exodus is where God is taking his people from slavery in Egypt into freedom uh, through the person Moses and through the great mighty works that he does there because Pharaoh does not want to let the, the people of Israel go. He, he wants to hold on to them and uh, he, he refuses to listen to God's word. God's word comes to him. He says, let my people go. He refuses to listen. And so in, as a consequence of that and to convince Pharaoh to let him go, God unleashes his judgment in Egypt. And so that's what we've been seeing the last two weeks, nine plagues on, uh, on the land of Egypt. And now we come to the final plague, which is, uh, which is the, the events of the Passover. If you were to look for one thing in the history of Israel, uh, which is the people of God that is most foundational to their formation and their identity, I think there's, there's really only two candidates. Um, the first is when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, because that's the beginning of his relationship with the people of Israel through the person Abraham. Um, but the second, and I actually think more significant, is the Passover. Um, this is the place where more than any other kind of event or time in their history, the people of God get their identity, that we are people who are loved by God and redeemed by God by the blood of the Passover lamb. Uh, that is so central to who they are. And I feel confident in saying it's the most significant event that kind of leads to their formation and identity because this is even picked up in the New Testament um, that this is a picture of ultimately what Jesus does in a more perfect and final and complete way uh, for the people of God. So this is what Peter says. He says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That Peter's using salvation language here. You were ransomed. You entered into God's salvation, not through perishable things like gold or silver. You, it's not the, the accumulation of what you've earned in your life that you get to exchange for God's salvation, um, but only with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And as we read through Exodus today, you're gonna see those, that's the requirement for the lamb, without blemish or spot. And if that's not clear enough, the apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, uh, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's how significant this event is that we're looking up. We get to see up close in the original account in Exodus, it's central uh, to where the people of God are getting their identity. It shows, it shows uh, so much of who God is, his, his character, and how we relate to him and, and what that relationship entails. Um, and even more so in, with the New Testament, it, um, it reveals to us who Christ is and, and his role as our sacrificial savior and, uh, and, and just everything that's contained in what he does for us on the cross. So it's in light of what God has done for us. And so that's important. Practical application gives us wisdom for, for 
uh, how we're supposed to live and function as the people of God on the earth. Um, and then maybe more important than that, not maybe, definitely more important than that, uh, you know, practical application is good, and the Bible is, is full of it, uh, wisdom for how to live, and this is what God's will is, and this is what obedience to him looks like. Um, but if you're new to Christianity, you might have this misconception that the Bible is primarily like this manual. You know, it, its purpose is to help you uh, find the right way for, for you to live and to please God. But that's, the Bible does that. It's not the primary thing the Bible does. Like, the Bible is not about us, and it's not about how we should live. The Bible is primarily about Jesus. It's about revealing Jesus to us in a way that we get to behold his beauty and his glory and his majesty and his goodness and his love. And as we behold him, as we see all these things in Jesus, we are changed to become more and more like him. Right? This is just like a generally true thing in life that um, wh whoever you look at with admiration, if you really admire someone, whoever you look at with admiration, you are influenced to become more and more like them. That's the second thing that I hope happens for us as we read through Exodus today is that we would just marvel at Jesus. We would behold him, behold his glory, his majesty, his goodness, his love, and as we behold him, that that beauty and glory and love would work its way deep into us and captivate our hearts so that we are transformed and changed to be more like him. All right, so those two things good, wise, practical application for life and beholding the glory of Jesus in such a way that it changes us. So, starting in Exodus 11, verse 1, says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Right. So this is the, the final plague. Um, the, the people of Israel, for, for 400 years, they've been enslaved and impressed and increasingly treated with really horrible injustice, and Pharaoh is extremely reluctant to let them go. He doesn't want to, but, but this is it. This is the final, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, and the people are finally going to be led into freedom, and as God is preparing them to walk in that freedom, he, he tells them something pretty interesting. He says, as you go, you're going to go and ask your neighbors for gifts of gold and silver jewelry, and I'm going to give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians which is kind of crazy when, when you think about it, that, um, you know, that the Egyptians would have a favorable opinion of the Hebrews. Because first of all, they're, they're slaves, and they've been taught and conditioned to look at them as less than human. And then also, they're kind of the subject of the previous nine plagues that have been pretty disruptive and destructive in the lives of the Egyptians, and yet somehow, for some reason, they're not holding that against them. God's giving them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Maybe what God's doing is kind of opening their eyes to see how unfairly the Hebrew slaves have been treated, that they've been serving really well, they haven't been leading any rebellions or really doing anything to merit, you know, our disdain, uh, and yet they've been treated in this horrible way, and 
maybe God's opening their eyes to see that this is actually Pharaoh's stubbornness and refusing to let the people go despite all the warnings. Like, that's really why we've been dealing with all these things. So, so maybe God's opening their eyes in these ways, but they're getting favor in, in the eyes of the Egyptians for how they've, they've lived and served there and how unfairly they've been treated. And, um, and so anyways, let's keep going on in verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall, shall growl against all the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all your people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my, my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. A lot in there that I want to go over just sort of briefly in, in each of those things. First, that the last thing that is mentioned there that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and we've mentioned this kind of all the way through that uh, initially what Pharaoh does is he, he closes his own ears to God's word. He says, I'm not gonna listen to God, I'm not gonna listen to God, I'm not gonna listen to God. He hardens his own heart and eventually what happens if you, uh, if you make yourself willingly deaf to God's word, eventually you become deaf, right? There does come a point where the, the pattern and the ways that you've been set in are sort of just revealing that's who you are, right? He's had opportunities to listen when, when God's been near and when he could turn and listen, and he hasn't done that. And so now he's sort of, um, you know, stuck in the choices that he's made, um, now, about the plague itself, this is the, the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. It's a fitting judgment for the people of Egypt because if you remember back to the very beginning of Exodus, the edict, the command that Pharaoh issues about the people of Israel that every son born to the Hebrews will be thrown into the Nile, right? This is a, a pretty clear uh, response to that command in this part of Egypt's history that happened. Um, it's meant to stir up memories of like, oh yeah, that we, we did do this and that's why God is punishing us in this way. Um, it's not necessarily targeting uh, like newborn children the way that you might think just reading it with our you know, modern eyes. Uh, firstborn in an ancient context is a legal position. Uh, it is the, the person who would inherit the, receive the inheritance of the father's house. And so this could be a grown person who is in the position of the firstborn in that house. And so it's not necessarily like all, all uh, you know, infant children like the, uh, the Egyptians uh, killed the, the newborn children of the Hebrews. Um, but it is a, it, it's a very complete judgment. There's, there's no distinction here for anyone in Egypt based on their wealth or their, their social standing. Everyone from Pharaoh on down to the slave, even down to the cattle, um, there's, there's no distinction in receiving God's judgment for this sin. In fact, the only distinction 
is going to be for the people of God. He says, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. God, God makes his people distinct from the world. He wants them to know, you are not the same as them. My people are distinct. And here's where I want to get into some of the good practical application that we learn from this about what it means to be God's people in the world. Uh, Look at, Jesus says this in John 17. He's praying for his followers, so he's speaking to his father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So if you look at that carefully, what is Jesus saying about the people who are his followers? They're not of this world. This isn't their... This isn't the place that we belong. This isn't our home. We're not made of the same nature and stuff of the world. And yet, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of it. This is where we are, but it's not what we are. The phrase that often gets used in churches is that Christians are people who are in the world, but not of the world. We, we live and we work and we serve in the world, but in some really significant, fundamental way, we are distinct from it. And what we see in Exodus is this very distinct, set-apart group of people who belong to God are able to grow in favor with their neighbors. And this is the important thing. Uh, this is an important part of being a Christian. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That in some way, to be a follower of Jesus means we should be able to live in a way where we're not like hiding who we are. We're not hiding the fact that we're Christians. People know that about us. They know about our faith and they might not agree with us. You know, and they might not even approve of our faith. You might have family who doesn't approve of your faith, friends, neighbors, coworkers who don't believe the same as you and, and don't hold, uh, you know, the same set of beliefs that you do about some pretty important things. And yet, those people, some of them, should be glad that they know you and glad that you're in the world because they see the way that you live and, and the good that you do, the good works that Jesus has given you to do. There, there's this needle that we need to be able to thread, and this is what takes wisdom. How do we, how do we remain distinct from the world and not, at the same time, completely remove ourselves from it? Right, so that we're still in the world and people are grateful to God that we're here, even if they don't believe in God. They're glad that we're here. They're glad that, they're glad that they know us. And yet, it's clear that we are not of the world. We're not, um, we're not part of it in the same way that everyone else is. There's two big, easy ways to miss this. The first is you get so much involved in the world that you're not distinct from it in any meaningful way. Right? And so you are entertained by the same things that a person who doesn't know or care about Jesus is entertained by. There's no distinction there. Um, you uh, spend your money on the exact same things in the exact same way as people who don't know or care about Jesus. Uh, you, um, you value the same things that are valued by people who don't know or care about Jesus. You treat people the same way. You, you carry yourself the same way. Uh, there's no real evidence that Jesus has made a meaningful change in your life to make you different from a person who's never met Jesus, doesn't care about him, doesn't care about following him, except for the fact that, you know, you're here. <laughs> you know, you do some Christian things, but then when you go home and you're not involved in Christian things or around other Christians, there's no distinction in your life at all. 
Like the, big, the first big mistake, the way that we miss threading the needle is we're too much of the world. We're too worldly. The second way that we miss is we're too otherworldly. Um, you're so far removed from being in the world, you don't know what's going on in it. And like for people who do this, sometimes they have this weird pride about it. You know, like you say things like, I don't even know what a TikTok is. Uh, you know, isn't that the sound that a clock makes? Ha ha ha. Like, it's not, like, you don't get points for not knowing what TikTok is. It's pretty popular. You should have heard of it. Um, you know, if, if you're too otherworldly, the way that you're missing this is your, your whole social network, your whole world is one big Christian bubble. Like, everything that you do and everyone that you know, it's all Christian. You, go, you, you, went, you do Christian school, you do uh, Christian work, you have Christian friends, uh, all your time is spent doing Christian things, and there's never any contact with anyone who, like, extends outside of that bubble. Now, I'm not saying that Christian school is a bad thing or doing Christian things is bad or having Christian friends is bad, but you have to admit, if you read the Bible and you see what Jesus calls his followers to do, like, you're not being a disciple if you're not going into the world. Like, if you, all you're doing is cutting yourself off from it, you can't be faithful to Jesus because he sends us out into the world. Like, Jesus loves the world so much he goes out into the world. We, we have to be able to be in the world and have some exposure and, and, uh, and some meaningful time that we're spending with people who don't know Jesus at all but not in a way that we become so overwhelmed by its influence that we become indistinct from it. How do we do that? What, what do we do to, uh, to make sure we're distinct from the world and not removed from it? The, the way that we grow in that is by looking to Jesus and remembering him as our Passover lamb. The, the more that we get who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the more real that becomes to us, the more, uh, the more that matters to you, the, the more you're able to see how you thread this needle. So Exodus 12, verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor, uh, his nearest neighbor, shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is how important Passover is for God's people. He makes it their first holiday and he restructures their whole calendar around it. This is gonna be the beginning of the year for you. Like this is your New Year's. When you start the year, every year, I want you to recalibrate by remembering this and participating in this and thinking about what it means for you, right? He's building it into their DNA so they can never forget. We are people God loves enough to redeem us by the blood of the Lamb. And that's an important aspect of it, that we, we do have to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, that there's a real cost that has to be paid when it comes to being redeemed by God and reconciled to be in a right relationship with Him. 
That's the same thing with being a Christian. Like, being a Christian is not simply agreeing with the right set of teachings. So, so you agree with what the Bible says about uh, morality, what's right and what's wrong, um, or, or attending the right events. Like, I go to church, I go to Christian conferences, I, I have a small group, or praying the right prayer. It's not those that there's a cost that comes to our relationship with God that has to be paid. It has to be paid through blood. The Israelites are much more intimately aware of this than we are because as part of observing their Passover on the 10th day, they take a lamb into their home and, uh, and then on the 14th day, so it stays there with them for a little while, just long enough for all their kids to be really attached to it and think it's the new pet. And then they kill it and, and they eat it. Um, like imagine if we did Thanksgiving like that. You know, like on Monday, you take a turkey in and, uh, and then on Thursday, you have to kill it and eat it. I feel like turkeys are probably pretty annoying to live with. You might kill it a little sooner than Thursday. But, uh, but that would be weird for us. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's different thinking about what this would be like for us now compared to then. Because it, it's not like people in their time and culture never killed animals ever. And this is like the first time they have to do it and the only time of the year they do it. Like, this is part of their life. They, they kill animals and they eat them. Um, that's how life was for them. I've never killed an animal in my life that wasn't hit by my car, and, uh, and I've never done it intentionally. Um, I, I do eat animals, but I buy them already dead, and uh, so someone else deals with killing them and, and all the blood and everything like that, and I just find the cheapest grade you meat that's, you know, on sale. Um, th this is part of their lives. This is uh, something that they are familiar with, and yet they still are seeing there is a cost to this. The blood is important. And here's where we really start to see, and you see him so much. You see Jesus in the Passover so much um, on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, he's arriving on the 10th day of the month, the, the day that they would select the lamb to be with them in their homes uh, that they would eventually kill on the 14th. And as Jesus is entering on Palm Sunday, the, the, the crowds of Jerusalem are shouting to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, looking to him as a king who's going to establish this earthly kingdom of God and lead the people of God in rebellion against uh, Rome and, uh, and establish a nation for them to live in peace on the earth. But that's not what Jesus is here for. He's not here to be a conquering king. He's here to be a Passover lamb. John the Baptist says that when, when he meets Jesus in John chapter one, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus is here for. He's here to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that by the power of his spilled blood and his sacrifice, his offering for us, we could be forgiven and redeemed and set free. Look at this in verse 7. We see it even more. Uh, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this matter, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. 
and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I, shall execute, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We've mentioned how the plagues are an indictment on the false gods that the Egyptians are worshiping, that they have a god of the Nile, and they have a god of the harvest, and they have a god of the sun, and through each of the plagues, the god of Israel is showing, I'm the true god of these things. I'm the one true living god. I am the one who has the power and the authority over these things. Now, I am the God who has the power and authority over life itself. I'm the God who gives life, and, and I have the authority and the right and the position to take life. Right? He's, he's putting to judgment the false gods and the false worship of the Egyptians, and you see how he's just so different. Um, the, the lamb, the Passover lamb that God gives them, it's meant to be for the people of Israel. It's meant to be totally sufficient for the people that are, are going to be covered together in that household. Uh, if it's a small household, you join together with your neighbor, you make sure there's enough for each person. But this is what Jesus is to us. He is, he's sufficient, right? Jesus is enough to cover us. He's enough to fulfill God's requirement to be our atoning sacrifice. Passover was always, always meant to point to Jesus as, as amazing a, of a triumphant moment the Passover is for the people of Israel, they, they get to see God's wrath passes over us because we're covered in the blood of the lamb, which is amazing. The blood of the lamb is not itself enough to deal with the issue of God's judgment. Um, what I mean is, and, and you see this across the Old Testament, and the book of Hebrews picks up on this. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says, under the law of Moses in the Old Testament, before the time of Jesus, everything is purified with blood, right? Blood is necessary. Every year there'd be sacrifices and offerings made with blood to atone for the sins of the people of Israel, but every year they'd have to do it again. They'd have to do it again and again and again, and it's never enough to deal finally, fully, and completely with the problem of sin, and that changes with Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the perfect offering, the, the lamb of God who's able to take away the sins of the world. He is spotless, perfect, completely righteous before the Father. And, and the, this is what Jesus offers, that he's given himself as an offering for you to forgive your sins and to, give, to spark in you this new life that he is going to cherish and breathe into and grow until you are perfected in eternity. Like, he's not going to let you go. He's going to cherish and, and, and uh, cultivate the, the life that he gives you. What's the catch in all this? How do we get this? Like the requirement is that we need to actually be covered in the blood of the Lamb. It needs to be applied to us. We don't get it by association. We don't get it by simply knowing about it. 
there's this one dimension of the Passover where this is for all the people of Israel, right? That uh, they're, they're all given this way for, uh, you know, redemption and freedom being covered for, for God's judgment. Um, it, it's for the whole, the people as a whole. And yet, there's another dimension to the Passover where each household has to personally make a decision and, and take action. They have to walk in the way that God has given them to walk. They have to actually take the lamb into their home. They have to kill the lamb. They have to apply the blood. They have to eat in the way that God's given them to eat with these bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. To eat the meal prepared to go in a hurry because God is immediately going to uh, bring them out into freedom. They're not to break a bone in the lamb, which is a significant detail that the New Testament picks up on. Um, that in Jesus' crucifixion, none of his bones are broken. Crucifixion was normally a long, drawn-out death. Uh, the, the cause of death was uh, suffocation because they're, they're held up with their back against it and they have to push themselves up to take a breath. And so sometimes to speed up the death, the Romans would break the legs of those being crucified. We see that happening with the two thieves on either side of Jesus, and yet Jesus is, is already dead by the time that they come to him. They pierce him in the side to make sure. Uh, verse 14, Exodus says this, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it, you shall keep it as a feast. And what follows here, there are verses that follow here that are more detailed instructions about keeping the Passover that are repetitive, and so you can read through this on your own, but just to see in here again, this is something that God gives them to do over and over again. This is something that he doesn't want them to forget or move on from. He wants it to sink deep down into them so that they realize and they make it part of their own self-understanding. I'm someone who is loved by God redeemed by God through the cost of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus does the same thing. He gives us a similar instruction when he institutes the, the practice of taking communion. On the night when Jesus is betrayed and sent to the cross, in Luke 22, we read this, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, uh, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We practice communion so that we take what Jesus has done for us by being our, our sacrificial lamb and making the perfect offering for us one time for all time. And remember, this is what it means for me to be the people of God. This is what I depend on. Right? Jesus' body is broken for me so I could be healed and made whole. Jesus' blood is poured out for me to make a new covenant, a, a covenant of grace. The reason God gives the Hebrews Passover and the reason Jesus gives us communion is because the gospel is not like math. Like, you know when you learn math in school and it's like two plus two equals four and you learn multiplication table and not sure they still do that because, I don't know, I've heard of like common core math and it sounds really complicated and bad, but the way we used to do it is you'd learn basic math, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication, and then as you get older, you learn uh, more complicated math. You learn trigonometry, geometry, where you 
prove that shapes are really shapes. And uh, calculus, pre-calculus, all these things, you, you go on to the advanced things and you never really go back to the basics because you just kind of have it mastered. You already know it, you're using it, but you don't think about it, you don't spend time going over addition ever again. Um, the gospel is not like that. You don't learn the good news of Jesus' love for you and his sacrifice for you and the free gift of his grace that forgives your sins and sets you free and gives you the hope of eternal life and then move on from there into like the real stuff, like the more complicated stuff and you never go back to that because you sort of mastered it, okay? That's not how it works. You don't move on from that and go, well, I'm an advanced Christian. I spend all my time talking about the rapture you know, or I'm, I'm a super advanced Christian, I spend all my time talking about, um, you know, the, the creation, and whether it was a literal seven days, or an old earth, or all these things, like, if you move on from the gospel, and you, you settle onto those things, you're not an advanced Christian, you're an immature Christian, so I don't know if you are a Christian, you don't graduate from the gospel, you don't move on from this, the gospel is something that you're able to grasp and understand God's love for you and Jesus' grace for you and what he's done for you on the cross. You can understand that, but you can never get to the bottom of it. You can never run out of things to marvel at in it. If you start moving on from that to something else, that is, that's your own immaturity. The way that we grow as Christians is not by graduating from the gospel, it's by steeping ourselves in it. It's by beholding Jesus, his glory, his beauty, his majesty, and what he's done for us, and that changes us in a deep and fundamental way. And so the way that you as a Christian grow in your serving is to reflect on and see how Jesus has served you. The way that you grow as a Christian in forgiving others freely, not holding it over their head, not making them earn it, freely forgiving. The way that you are able to do that is understanding and seeing and experiencing the way Jesus has freely forgiven you. The same thing with patience and with, uh, and with generosity and with uh, humility and compassion and serve, everything. You, you see it in Jesus, you behold it in Jesus, and it becomes part of you and becomes part of the way that you now go out into the world and serve and love and bless the world. Now, changed by Jesus in a way that the world is going to see, I'm glad that you do that. I'm glad you forgive like that. I'm glad you serve like that. I'm glad you're humble like that. This is all coming from your faith. I don't agree with that, but I'm glad that I know you. The more captivated your heart is by the goodness of Jesus, the more your life is changed by him. Let's keep reading in Exodus, and, and this is as far as we'll go today from uh, verse 21 to 32. It says this, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, 
for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then they summoned, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Um, few things to take note of here as uh, we bring this to a close. First, um, one, you see how God is infusing this into the DNA of his people, and part of that is so that the children that are born to them would see what they're doing and would ask questions about it. And say, why, why do we do that? And they say, well, this is why we do it, because this is what God's done for us, and this is who we are, and this is what our relationship with God is. I mean, that's, like, if you have kids, if, if you have younger you know, people around you that you are uh, discipling and pouring into, this is one of the things that you want to be part of, uh, of, of the way that you're making disciples, you, that there are things that you do in your life. This is part of being distinct, set apart from the world. There are things that you do in your life that people are going to ask, or your kids are going to ask, why do we do that? Why do we go to church? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do you forgive people so easily? And so you can say, well, this is why I do it, because this is what Jesus has done for us, and this is who we are because of Jesus. And you get to transfer that DNA down to the, the following generations, and the new people are being raised up. One of the things that we learn from this, and the way that God follows through with this, and this whole account really all together, um, we learn that God's judgment is real. God is a just God, and judgment is in his hand. I mean, he sees us. He sees everything about us. The, the Bible tells us God is able to look at you and weigh the thoughts and intentions of your heart. There's nothing that we can hide from him. There's, not, there's no excuse we can make. There's nothing we can hide, nothing we can you know, pretend is not there. God looks through us, and he, he weighs the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And the wages of sin is death, and judgment is real. However, the good news of the Passover is we also see that God's mercy is real. God really does provide a way for his people to be covered by his grace. And you even see the protectiveness of God in the scripture that we just read, that as the destroyer passes through Egypt, God himself will not allow the destroyer to look into the house. He's standing there guarding the home of everyone who is covered in the blood of the lamb. God really does provide a way for us to be covered by his grace. This is one of the greatest gifts that we have as Christians. One of the greatest freedoms that we enjoy is the freedom from the fear of judgment. We can have confidence, you can have confidence to know that you are sheltered by God because of the blood of Jesus. You can know that you are hidden in Christ, 
held by him, cherished by him, protected forever. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for you because what Jesus stands condemned in your place. He pays the debt that you owe for your sin. He, he pays it in full. There's nothing left to pay. There's no condemnation left to give. You're free forever from the fear of judgment. Have you taken hold of God's mercy that he extends to you, that he invites you to take hold of? Have you made a decision to put your faith in Jesus and the work that he's done for you on the cross and shedding his blood? Finally, the, the last thing that we see in here is we see God's victory. That this is the moment when Pharaoh finally decides to let the people go and they get to walk together in freedom. Right? God, God knows that the, he's going to have the victory. He, he has them eat ready to go, ready to walk in it because he, victory is in his hands. There's never a question. In the same way, Jesus is victorious at the cross. Jesus is killed. His body is put in the tomb. But on the third day, he rises from the grave. He's victorious over death. He conquers Satan, sin, and death. And now he goes before us to prepare a place for us. He, he walks before us in victory. So we have confidence to follow him, knowing that he's leading us into freedom. We see the, the love of Jesus for us, the cost that he paid, but also the victory that he wins. We get to behold all of it, and all of it should be working deep into our hearts and changing us. Let me pray for us.